aware of the fact today you need to be ransomed. It's an interesting, thought-provoking lyric, is it not? Jesus is coming to um, Palestine uh, 2,000-plus years ago. Why? Why then? Galatians 4 and 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. There was a specific time in history that this historic figure came on the scene. And we should take note of that because it's that particular context that we best understand his teaching, his ministry to other people. He came to a world ruled by the Roman Empire. And he came to a people oppressed by the Roman Empire. Many things pressing in against this people. I don't know if you're here today and you've got something pressing down on you, pressing on you in your life, whether it's uh, like Jesus. He came to minister to the oppressed, the suppressed, the repressed, the pressed, the oppressed. He was and went to the place of the press to handle it. So he's coming to the context in history where the Roman Empire is, is really in, in control of all matters, control of all government, control of all construction, control culturally, financially, they pretty much call the shots. This is when the Father sent the Son. And it's in that context that Jesus preaches his first public sermon. And in that first public sermon, we have to keep in mind what the actual context was so that we can understand why he chose to say what he said, when he chose to say it, and in what context he said it. Because once we get on board with that, we're going to understand his purest intent for you and I today in this context, in this culture. So let's think about it for a second. The Romans had built 50,000 miles of road. Actually, the Romans didn't build anything. Other people built 50,000 miles of road for the Romans. And at each mile on that road, whether it was a green and white reflective sign, mile marker, I don't know for sure, but there was a mile marker. And that mile marker would let you know when you've walked a mile. And Not only was there a road system in place, the Roman Empire went as far north as the UK. And this is an expansive, huge empire. They would place in outlying areas statues of the Caesar in the town squares just to remind the small villages who was in charge because they couldn't spread their military out over the geography that they had rule over. So they'd figure, well, just remind people of who's in charge. We'll put statues up in their cities. Russia did this with Stalin, and many nations have done this. You're talking about a massive, massive empire. They had a shipping system and shipping lanes and waterways and roadways that were perfect at that time for the proliferation and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It only made sense to send them at that particular period of time so every other civilization to follow would understand how to be delivered from oppression, suppression, depression, oppression, and everything else. It it was perfect because he showed the underdog at the center of the globe, at the center of the map of the globe in Palestine. He showed the world 
how to live and how to live in him and how to escape the occupation and the control and the rule and the reign of the Roman military. On those roads at every mile marker, you kind of had an idea not only of how long you walk, but there were signs to tell you what direction you were walking in. And oftentimes, you'd have an idea of how long you walked in areas that were dangerous to walk in. The Roman Empire was big on informing you when to be scared and how far you've walked and how much further you're going to be scared on the actual roadway. If at any time a Roman soldier on that road decided he no longer wanted to carry his pack, he could look over at you and he could point at you and you would have to, by law, carry his pack and his load on you for the next mile. Not more than a mile, but for the next mile. Can you imagine you're on your first date? You're walking to the ice cream store. The date's going pretty good. You're going to go see a movie. And a centurion walks up to you and lets you know that for the next mile, you're going to be carrying his pack. It's not a mile, though, is it? It's two miles because you have to come back. You're running errands one day. You're going to visit your grandmother. You're going to a funeral and you're running late. You're trying to get to a wedding, your best friend, you're the best man. And you're delayed in this humiliating act of being commissioned into schlepping someone else's baggage for them for a mile. I would say that most people in this room probably walk a mile in around 15 minutes. What's your attitude on that walk, by the way? As you walk behind, as the dust is stirred up on the road and it's coming in your face and you're carrying this soldier's pack, what's your attitude? Uh, what are you saying under your breath? How humiliating do you feel? And what does your girlfriend think about all this? That's the context that Jesus entered into. This humiliating, inconvenient commissioning at the drop of a hat no matter who you are or where you were going. Unless, of course, you were a Roman citizen. Jesus was headed to the cross. This same principle actually was put into play with Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for the rest of the way. It's the same, it's the same kind of principle. Those soldiers were were accustomed to acknowledging and pointing out someone that had to carry something for someone else. They knew that. Mark 15 to 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in front of the country and they forced him to carry the cross. That would not have been an odd thing. That would have been a very normal thing. The problem with the whole practice is, is it's not so much the physical uh, demands on you to walk a mile. It's not that. I guess for some it would be, but I, I don't guess they really pick somebody who looked frail and sickly to carry their pack. I'm sure they picked people that were healthy, that wouldn't slow them up. So it wasn't the physical demand of walking a mile. A mile, after all, isn't all that long, but it wasn't a physical thing. It was an identity thing. You see, by asking someone, or telling someone, not asking at all, telling someone to, draw, to, to get your pack and start walking was 
to attack your identity. It was to diminish your personhood. It was to equate you with a pack animal. It was to degrade you. And it was to keep you in line with who was in charge and who was not. You were clear at a quarter mile, half mile, three quarter, and a mile. You were clear who was in charge and how much helpless, how helpless you were in the whole process. It was an attack on your identity. So I can imagine there was some grumbling and some cursing maybe. And this welled up in the Israeli people. This, this, this welled up in a lot of groups of people. And this is why you had zealots. This is why you had people who fought back. This is why you had people who pulled swords out of their robes and killed people in mass crowds. This is, this is why you had insurrection. And this is why Pontius Pilate is worried about insurrection and riots. This is why you've got to really pay attention to what you're reading in the Bible. They didn't want any problems. The Romans actually could have been slaughtered by those the oppressed if the oppressed had a strategy. So the Romans created the Colosseum and amused and entertained them to death, and they no longer could put a strategy together. They were too enamored with their television program. And they always outdid themselves on how outlandish these things became in the Colosseum, and now the people are distracted and they're oppressed and they're carrying luggage all across the Roman Empire, all 50,000 miles. And Jesus starts his first sermon. Can you imagine somebody starting their first sermon in this context? Can you imagine somebody running for office and trying to get votes and their first stump speech is on this, on this subject? And he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 41, Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. <laughs> what? Is this uh, winning friends and influencing people on any level? Is this a recommended sermon topic for your first time in a church? Is this the first thing out of the gate you want to deal with to a people who are already looking for a deliverer to be emancipated from oppression and to establish their own nation state, their own identity, and their own people group? No, no, I want you to not only go with them, I want you to go another mile. What is he talking about? How does he get away with this? Why, this would be the last thing a campaign manager would do, is to say, this is what you gotta do, double it up. Just double it up. They don't like the one, tell them to go too. And, and it's interesting to me, the way that he begins his, quote, revolution. His revolution, if you really look at it, is basically endorsing what they've done and asking to double up on it, is to take those who are persecuting you and bless them. He says, blessed are you who are persecuted. Then he says, now I want you to bless your persecutors. I want you to love your enemies. This is perplexing. Why would he do that? And what does that have to do with us here today? You see, the first mile was a forced mile. It's a mandated mile. It's not up for negotiation mile. It's a do as you're told mile. It's a demeaning, humiliating mile. It has its purpose from the Roman perspective. And you're dripping and seething with anger by this conclusion. The second mile was a freedom mile. The first was a mandate mile, the second was a miracle mile. How so? 
You see, in the first mile, you didn't have any choice. Something was imposed upon you, even randomly. And it was imposed on you because of who you were and from whom you came. And in a Middle Eastern culture, 2,000 years ago, it was to shame you. It was to make it clear to you that you are less than who you think you are and you have no honor, and the honor lies with those who wear the military regalia. It is to basically say to you, you have no choice in the matter, and this is what's going to happen. There are those in the sound of my voice this morning to whom things were mandated upon you that you didn't have a choice over. For some of you, it was attending church. For some of you, you cut your teeth in the back of a pew. For some of you, it was to go into a church that had false teaching. For others of you, it was harm, it was hurt, it was abuse. Something was mandated for which you had no choice, and you were oppressed by it. And you may now still be dealing with the ramifications, if not the, you know, the consequences of that hurt. Yeah, that first mile was a forced mile, and the first mile was a mandated mile. So why would the omnipotent, omniscient Lord, the wisest figure in all of all creation, suggest a second mile? Well, the second mile is the freedom mile. It's a mile that you, that you go above the mandated mile that, quite frankly, you make a conscious choice to do. And because you make a conscious choice to do it, the one you're carrying the pack for is not in control. And he's not in charge. He's not calling the shots. And he's not humiliating you. You now are in charge. You now are taking initiative. You now are making a choice and you now are free. Jesus wanted his people to be free. They wanted freedom through might. He showed them freedom from oppression by their choices. So, you begin to walk the second mile. I was channel surfing the other day, which brings up this question. Has anybody seen a commercial in the last four years? This is great. I don't watch commercials anymore. Commercial, the price of a commercial, it has to have dropped. I just fast forward through most of them. Or I change the channel. But I'm watching this movie comes on. It's Cool Hand Luke. Now, when I moved to uh, Atlanta in 1979, from up north in Maryland, I was shocked. They had chain gangs in Atlanta. No kidding. You could call the prison system and tell them you needed some landscaping done in your backyard, and you'd have a chain gang there that next week. No kidding. The bus would pull down on your cul-de-sac. They all get out, and they start cutting your weeds for you. I was like, man, this is great. Then I got to thinking about it. This is kind of weird. I don't know where they went now, but they're gone. But in Cool Hand Luke, they were a chain gang, all chained together. Now, their job, if you've seen the movie, their job now is to take this hot, and I mean it's hot out, southern Alabama hot, waves of heat just coming right off the road, and they're putting that hot tar down. 
And these prisoners are having to throw sand on the tar to cover the tar as fast as they possibly can. While the boss man, the pit boss, starts walking down the road. And if his feet ever hit hot tar, boy, are you in trouble. So Paul Newman, who's Luke, he decides, I'll tell you what, we're going to have some fun with this. Let's make a contest out of it. Let's see if we can get rid of the sand before the day's end and we'll get off early. He makes a contest of it. He gets all the other prisoners all pumped up and they start throwing that sand out faster than the pit boss can walk. Faster than he get down, he's going to have to run, which is humiliating to him if he has to run. But he can't walk fast enough and the sand is 10, 15, 20 feet ahead of him on the tar already. And finally, there's no more sand. And the correctional officers look at each other like, what do we do now? This has never happened before. And they sat down on this shovel and they took a break. They took an oppressive act and made a choice and turned it into a positive fun encounter. Fun in quotes. I used to work for a temp service. Has anybody here been cursed with the, with the, with the reality of working for a temporary agency? Do they still have those? Yeah. They pay you like minimum wage, and then the temp agency gets their cut. And I think by the end of the day, you got to figure out how much you owe them to have worked in the factory. I think that's pretty much how it works. So I got, I was in college, and I would go home on the holidays, and I would be, I worked temp jobs. I worked in a Payless shoe store one time, which had the, the, the nastiest storage room I ever saw in my life. And then I worked in the factories. And one time, I worked in this job for like five days straight. And my job, now gentlemen, at the, at the bottom of a urinal is a piece of rubber with holes in it. I don't know what it's called, but my job was to put that in a box. In fact, it was my job to put that in a box. Now, they were new. They weren't used. To put that in a box about 5,000 times a day. Do you know how mind-numbing that is? So I got the other characters together, inspired by Cool Hand Luke, and we started turning those things out to where they, they ran out of supply. And I didn't have to work as long. And I wasn't making any money anyway. But what, what was mandated for me to do, we turned into something that we put a choice together for. And it really messed with their minds. And this is why Jesus is bringing up the freedom mile. Make a choice. Choose what you're going to do. Take your initiative. And you be in control. He's trying to teach them how to deal with oppressors. Take Jesus, for instance. He makes it to Gethsemane. When he gets to the garden in Gethsemane, which some of, some of us will be in that garden next week, when he gets to Gethsemane, he's finished his first mile. The prophetic, messianic mandate put him in Gethsemane that night, and he had to make a decision a free will choice decision as to whether or not he was going to go the second mile. He couldn't get his friends, his brothers, to pray with him. He's all alone. And he says, do I want to go the second mile? Do I want to go the second mile? And the father's giving him this opportunity to make a choice. Now, he's not mandated to do it. Like, your Lord voluntarily died on your behalf. He voluntarily, of his own will, 
went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26 and 39. The second mile, the second mile that he traveled impacted the centurion. He said, surely this must be the Son of God. You and I live in a crazy, confused culture. I don't anticipate this culture that is crazy and confused getting a whole lot figured out in the next 25 years. How do you impact an oppressed, clueless empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You figure out the need to go the second mile. It's the second mile that opens the eyes. It's the second mile that's thought-provoking. It's the second mile that's curious to those who are lost. It's the second mile that someone has to say, why is he doing this? Why is she doing this? Why, is, why are they treating me this way? Why are they blessing me when I hurt them? Why are they doing what they're doing? And Jesus is trying to tell the people of Palestine of the first century the same thing he's trying to tell this of the 21st century. We have to go a second mile to open the eyes of those whose eyes are, uh, and hearts are closed so that they can look up at a cross and say, surely this must be the Son of God. It's the miracle mile and it's the freedom mile that makes the difference. There are people, maybe even here today, that have spent the entirety of their life watching people walk the first mile. Christians saying this and that under their breath and saying this and that not under their breath. Complaining, whining, pointing the finger, judging others. All the things that are a response to humiliation reactive living, defensiveness, harboring resentment, never looking over an offense. They've seen first mile Christians their whole entire life. They were mandated to sit in a pew next to them most of their life. And this world will actually be changed by those who will go the second mile, who make a choice. To let their actions speak louder than their words. To love the unlovable, to respect the unrespected, or disrespected, or unrespectable, or despicable. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, he hung around with people who walked the first mile. And he dined with, ministered to, laid hands on, taught, and blessed. Enough people that 11 out of 12 got the idea that we have to go to the second mile. We have to go to the second mile. We have to be in charge. We have to be the church. We have to exercise our own free will. We have to make a choice. Our choice is to glorify God, not make a choice based on the lack of glory in those who are oppressing us or persecuting us. And this will become more of an issue in the future, far more of an issue in the future. You see, when you walk the mandated mile, you end up walking two miles. 
When you walk the extra second mile, you end up walking four miles because you got to return to your date. It's really harder to enjoy the things we have to do when we only walk the first mile. Who irritates you? Go to second mile. Who wronged you? Go to second mile. Who stole from you? Go the second mile. They expect your response during the first mile. They don't expect your response after the first mile marker. Who wronged you? Who hurt you? I'm not saying restore your relationship to where it was. I'm not saying that. I'm saying move in the boundary. Move the boundary. Keep yourself safe emotionally. But you and I have to live the transcendent second mile life. The Christian today, the evangelical Christian in the United States of America that has the attitude of the first mile Christian is not distinguished enough from the world. They're not distinguishable enough from the world. They're only doing what they have to do. Chick-fil-A adopted this policy in a corporate meeting. I happen to be aware of how this went down. And every other fast food restaurant practice first mile service. Heads of uh, Chick-fil-A got together, one of which attends the church. And so this is not acceptable because all we're doing is what everyone else is doing. We're doing what we feel like we have to do and we're walking one mile. You go to Chick-fil-A today, they've adopted this practice in all of their restaurants. You go down and sit down and have your food, and someone will come and see if you want a refill or more napkins or some condiments or just to see how you're doing. Second mile. They make more revenue in six days than others do in seven they charge more for their food and they get more for their food because their food is accompanied by second mile service. Hmm. That's effective. People are heavy laden in this world. And the, the weight is getting heavier every time they turn on the news and they hear things like inflation, interest rates. The fear, the fear in people forecast ahead into the future of what they're not going to be able to do and what they're afraid of happening. And this is all first mile. Where's the second mile person? What do they think about? They're not looking into the future to say, oh, how bad things are going to be. They're looking into the future to say, what choices I'm going to make? They're going to open the eyes of other people. What am I going to do that no one expects? How am I going to behave in a manner that no one has seen before? And how in the world could I even consider, even right now, going to third mile? You see, that kind of person's blessed. That kind of person's prepared. That kind of person makes a difference. That kind of person picks up a pack and goes two miles, and the centurion says, surely that must be the son of God. 
Yeah, he was in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'll go the next mile. Because the next mile is a voluntary march, the heaviest of all burdens. It had already caused him to start bleeding that night. That's how heavy it was. The pressure was so intense at the place of the press that he was already losing blood at the very notion, the very notion of going the second mile, the very inception of the idea of the reality in that one little part right there. It was already causing his head to bleed, just the fact that he was thinking about it. And as soon as he said, nevertheless, at the place of the press, hand of the high priest put on his head started to press into him the sin of the world just like the Levitical scapegoat that left the town with the sins of the people you know when he says come follow me I mean I don't know how you look at that you can look at that in so many different ways come follow me does that literally mean come on we're going to go walk around for three years we're literally going to walk around I want to show you some things. Come follow me. Did he mean it physically, literally, come follow me? He had to mean more because he says it to you and I, and we cannot literally walk in the same steps, the same concrete that he did. Can't do it. Can't walk on the same seashore. Can't walk in the same water. So if he's saying it to them, it could be literal. If he's saying this to us, it's not literal. What he's saying to us is, follow me. Come on. Let's go to the second mile. Let's go to second mile. What's second mile? It's not the status quo. The darkness isn't in charge. You're not being manipulated or humiliated. You're making a choice. Because when you're second mile Christian, listen, you're slave to all. You're a slave to all. You're no better than anyone. You cannot cast the first stone. You cannot cast the first stone. All you can do is exemplify what your Lord told you to do. And if we do what he told us to do, guess what happens? We get the results he told us we'd have. Second mile. Is this some sort of motivational pep talk to get you all hyped up about doing more and more often? This is simply a reminder that you and I have a mind, and it is the mind of Christ, and we can make a decision in our life. On every day that we live, we can make a decision, and the decision has to be on some level. If we really want to impact this world and be fruitful, I might have to go the second mile or the second quarter mile to begin with. Maybe I need to go visit that person. Maybe I need to die to self just a little bit more. Oh, here's one. Simon of Cyrene. Maybe I need to pick up my cross daily, follow Christ, deny myself. Ooh. Maybe we're Simon. Standing on the side of the road or sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, someone brings up the topic. We need someone to carry this another mile. He's just finished his first and he can't do it. D.L. Moody said in the congregation, says, here, my Lord, send me. I warn you against being too comfortable. 
I warn you today against being too satisfied. I warn you today about traveling too short a distance in a world that needs you to go further. It's not going to wear you out because he's going to carry you because his yoke is easy and the burden is light. And the people that you walk that mile with in your life right now, and they've got a really heavy suitcase. I mean, 100-pounder. It's those people whose eyes open the widest. When they get to that mile marker and they look at you and they're looking around for someone else to carry it, and you keep walking. You keep walking. Because they're not going to find anybody who's going to do that. Just you. Who's got the heaviest burden? And how long have you been walking with them? And is there further to go? United States of America will only be as good as the Second Mile Church. Righteousness exalts a nation. We're figured out. This world has us figured out. They have us figured out, they know our limitations, and they've labeled us. Whether they verbalize it or think it, it doesn't matter, we're labeled. And may they, they may not know the concept I'm sharing with you, but if they really heard the concept, they'd say, no, it's a first-mile first church. It's a first-mile church. It's not a second-mile church. Your relationships with people in your life, and you might be the sole conduit to God. They, you might be the sole person in their life. They don't even know how to articulate it. You're their one conduit to God. And they cannot have you be a first-mile evangelical Christian. They can't. They have to have you be a second mile. They have to. Their eyes won't open. Their thoughts won't be provoked. Their minds won't, their, their sin won't be, a, it won't be a conviction of their sin. They have to see a second miler in a first-mile world. They have to see something different. And the first-mile church is far too predictable Far too ordinary. And Jesus starts his first public ministry, boom! Let's hit it right where we need to hit it. We need to be second milers. There it is. That's why you start your campaign and your revolution of the world on the single most difficult point you can bring up. Not to mention loving your enemies and turn your other cheek. Well, there it is. Mandated mile or miracle mile? Forced or free? What is it? What's it going to be? And whatever you do, let the motivation be love. It has to be love. Don't mandate yourself into mandating yourself into another. You've done nothing but do the first mile two times. We have to do the second mile the first time. Unlike the first, 
without grumbling, without complaining, without dispute, without anger, without gossip, without all the things that are associated with the first mile humiliation. And that's why Jesus Christ told his people how to live in their context, in the fullness of time, as the Father would have them do. And that's why I give you this today for your consideration. Nevertheless, not by will be done, but yours, Lord, yours. If you're here today and never accepted, you've never, you've never done whatever it is you think you have to do to have this relationship with Christ, whatever it is you call it. It's not happened for you yet. Call it born again, call it whatever you want. Call it giving your life to Christ, whatever you call it. Forget, forget calling it. If you've never had that connection made, if you've never started that right there, you've never had that friendship begin, I mean, you acknowledge him, you've heard of him, you've read about him, you've been to a church every now and again, you've been to some weddings and funerals, and, and, and you may even watch a little something on TV. You've been through some ups and downs in your life, but the connection never got made. This is the thing about him. He wants to carry your bags. God wants to carry your bags. Your hurt, your woundedness, your confusion, your alienation, your lack of satisfaction, your depression, whatever. He wants to carry your bags. Because when he went the second mile, he made the decision to carry your heaviness. And he says, my yoke is easy and the burden is light. My yoke is easy. Take it upon you. He says, I'm gentle and humble of heart. There's no ogre waiting to beat you on the head. There's no ogre waiting to punish you. He's already punished himself. He's not trying to get you to a point where you're acceptable. You're acceptable the way you are. Just as you are, right now. He wants to open your eyes by showing you he went the second mile to a cross. He hung naked on a tree. He scorned your shame. He was bludgeoned, wounded, pierced for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He is who he says he is. Nobody would make up that sermon. Nobody would preach that sermon from the get-go. Nobody in their right mind who was, wanted the favor of man, wanted momentum, wanted affection of other people, wanted the praise and flattery of other people. Nobody, fundraising from other people, nobody would preach that sermon but God. Nobody. He's wanting to schlep your heaviness for another mile or two or 50,000. Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. The best second mile offer you're ever gonna receive. You never, whatever you wanna call it, believed. You never started. Why not now? Why not now? Oh my gosh, why not now? Why would you wanna pick up your heaviness and schlep it another mile? Tomorrow, why not now? Why, why are you watching this thing? Why are you, if you're still listening to this message, 
If you hadn't tuned out 20 minutes ago, you want something, you need something, you haven't got something you need yet. If you're still listening to this message, your heart's primed, my friend. You're traveling down the road, listening to whatever, you got your headphones on, you're exercising, I don't know. If you're still listening to this, something in you needs to be filled. And the only thing that fills that void is Jesus Christ. The only thing. The only one. He loves you. If you never started, never accepted, you never asked him to come into your life, you never asked him to walk with you another mile. And you're here today, is that what you want? I'll pray with you, I'll, I'll, I'll help you, I'm here. I've devoted my life to helping people do this. Is, is there anyone here that needs that? Raise your hand, let me see, I, I don't know. I have no idea. My guess is there's very few, if any. But, I mean, is there anything more important? pray. Father, you seem to be situating weight today, heaviness. That combined with distance, as you know, gets old. But I come to you in the name of the one who is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Who took on our heaviness. Enlightened our load. Ransomed us from darkness. It's in his name I ask you to reveal to us each person this week, today even, this afternoon. Quit that first mile with that person a little soon. Should I, Lord, have lingered just a little while longer? Have I not another mile in me? A miracle mile, freedom mile. Who is that person, Lord? Bring it to our heart and mind. Who have I withheld from? Am I living, are we living, Lord, under what we perceive to be your requirements of acceptability and not exceeding them? How ridiculous. We can't meet the requirements to begin with. Why would we define them? Reveal to each person here their acceptability where they are and their freedom to choose to go the next mile, the fruitful, free, and fun mile. Open our eyes that we may see. Surely you are the Son of God. And everyone said, Amen.